Jesse Amato again yeah. today. He's got a very interesting story to tell. I happened to come across Jesse's story on LinkedIn, actually, because I follow Greg Page, mm-hmm. former Yellow Wiggle on LinkedIn, who's now running up heart of the nation, which mm. we'll get into what that is. But mm. I'll bring in Jesse and let him tell his story. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. I mean, uh, thank you guys for having me. Um, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to tell the story. It's a pretty powerful one. Uh, don't know. Do you want to? <laughs> do you want the full lowdown? Yeah, let's get the full lowdown. What, okay. what, what is what? What is your story? Uh, well, basically, I shouldn't really be here talking to you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably the best way to put mm-hmm. it. But I am, luckily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I played indoor soccer uh, for a number of years and I played outdoor soccer for a number of years before that. So um, it's a sport I've grown up with and a sport I've played basically my entire life. And uh, two and a half years ago, Mm. I was doing exactly that, uh, playing indoor uh, with a group of friends who I'd played indoor for for a number of years. Um, One person in particular, we played indoor together for, well, several years and outdoor for several years before that as well. So, um, you know, I classify him as one of my best mates. I'm actually catching up with him today uh, to go to the Collingwood Fremantle game. Nice. Um, so he was on the pitch that day and it was just basically like any Wednesday night, mm. go out uh, to Witten Oval, play, play some ball with the guys and, you know, go home and talk about all the goals I scored basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, I don't score any goals. <laughs> <laughs> Were you playing five-a-side? Oh, sorry. Yeah, five-a-side. That's good. Uh, um, yeah. So it was January, so it was hot, yeah. um, hot and steamy that day. And basically my, my last kind of memory of heading to indoor soccer was the car ride there. Mm. I don't remember the game. Um, I don't remember really anything for a couple of days after that car ride. So it's just a hazy memory of me kind of sitting in the back seat um, with some music going, a few gags and just general catch up um, because we carpooled there. And as it turned out, uh, in the second half, um, with about five minutes to go, I collapsed onto the hardwood floor. And at that point, most of the guys thought that I'd kind of cramped or mm. done an Achilles yes. or yeah. something like that. Because it's it, like people understand it's very normal that someone just gets an injury on the soccer field yeah. and they just, just sit down. Like it's very natural. Like every player wouldn't be like, oh shit, something happened. It's it's very natural. Like, oh shit, something must have happened. That's it. Yeah. Or it was either that or one of my mates thought that I would uh, was like diving for a free kick. Oh yeah. Is not really in my personality, but I don't know why. I don't know why you thought <laughs> that. Anyway. Um... So I wasn't diving for a free kick. I wasn't injured. Um, what had happened was I had a, a sudden cardiac arrest mm. on the field, um, which I didn't know what that was, obviously, uh, at the time. I didn't know what it was beforehand. I only really got to uncover what that meant after mm. I'd kind of uh, woken up and was briefed on what had actually happened. So uh, a few seconds after I'd collapsed, uh, the guys were in a bit of a state of shock, didn't know what had happened. Um, again, they thought I was kind of maybe injured, but uh, there was one person on the field who thought uh, this is much more serious. So he came up to me and realised that I didn't have a pulse, I wasn't breathing, uh, my face was starting to turn blue. And these to, to Todd, these were all signs that um, I didn't have any oxygen going into my brain um, and I was 
basically going to die if I didn't have any uh, attention given it to, given to me. Um, so he was the first person to make that realization, and a few of the other, uh, few of my other teammates were quite hesitant because Todd was an opposition player, and the guys didn't know him. Mm. Uh, he was effectively a stranger, just a person we were playing indoor soccer against, and um, he had the courage to say to my teammates who he hadn't met before that he needs immediate attention. He needs CPR mm. uh, because if he doesn't get that attention you can say goodbye to your mate basically. So uh, the guys not knowing any better just agreed and Todd started pumping my chest um, like an absolute superhero Uh, and he did that for 10 minutes before the ambulance arrived. So key detail of the story, in a situation like that where someone has collapsed, they don't have a pulse um, and and they don't show any signs of life essentially. They need access to a defibrillator as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. So these are life-saving devices. Um, multiple different studies show that if you can have uh, a defibrillator on hand you know, within three minutes of a collapse, uh, a person's chances of survival skyrockets. So at the stadium, there was a defibrillator on site. Unfortunately, it wasn't accessible. So it was locked underneath a cabinet, it was locked in a cabinet in the administration office. So not on the stadium floor where it should have been visible and accessible for everyone to see and use as needed. It was in the administration office locked underneath um, a shelf in a cabinet. So uh, someone was scrambling looking for that defibrillator but they couldn't find it Um, and by the time they did find it, the ambulance had already arrived and it was too late. So what that meant was... Todd, again, like an absolute superhero, had to do CPR for 10 minutes straight without access to a defibrillator, um, which is far from ideal mm. and in effect decreases, decreased my chances of survival massively because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully he was trained in CPR and he did it really effectively and the reason he was trained is because he's a police officer. Oh, wow. Uh, so he trained in CPR um annually kind of does a refresher course obviously as part of the job um so he's a uniformed police officer so he needs to know how to do this uh and basically when the ambulance arrived uh todd kind of took a step back obviously and they did their work the other interesting detail about this story and it just goes to show how lucky i was was that there was also an off-duty paramedic in the stadium who was helping to coordinate the resuscitation Hmm. and when the paramedics arrived they all knew the paramedic who was already in the stadium. He was just off duty playing indoor soccer on one of the other fields. Wow. So it's, when yeah, there's so much luck involved in this story. Yeah, it's honestly wild, Dan. It really is. That's why I'm saying like the fact that I'm sitting here is yeah. <laughs> very lucky. Um, so yeah, when when the when the on duty paramedics arrived, the off duty paramedic recognized them and they you know said hello and he briefed them on the situation and what had happened and uh, yeah, it all kind of really turned out my way um but at that point i wasn't out of the woods so uh because i didn't have any oxygen to my brain for a a few a few minutes uh there's there was question marks of whether or not i would have any kind of permanent neurological damage as a result that's true so uh at this point uh my parents and girlfriend uh had arrived at the stadium and my sister as well so they got a panic call from uh, Christian, who was the friend I was talking, he was the friend I was talking about earlier. 
Um, and yeah, I still, I do not feel sorry for him having to make that phone call to yeah. my mum, but he did it anyway. Um, so they kind of came rushing to the stadium, like panicked. They saw me kind of getting treated by the paramedics. They didn't quite get there for the CPR part, but they saw me getting treated by the paramedics. And yeah, at that point they knew it was quite serious. So, uh, what happened from there was the paramedics basically had to say to my parents, like, look, we don't know what the outcome of his life is going to be after this. We know it's serious. Um, we know we've got him in a stableish condition, but we don't know what the impact of him not having the oxygen to his brain is going to be. Would, were they able to revive the pulse or anything? Yeah. Was- so, so, so I think by the time I'd left the stadium, they had had a chance to uh, use the defibrillator hmm. and restart my heart basically, bring it back to its normal rhythm. But again, they didn't know what the damage would be to my brain as a result of um, not having any blood flow to the brain for that True. period of time. Mm. So uh, what they when I got to the hospital, so they rushed me to Royal Melbourne um, straight afterwards. They got me to the hospital and said, like, look, we're going to have to put him in a coma for uh, X amount of time until we feel like he's recovered enough. And that's what they did. So I the game was Wednesday night and I kind of was eased out of the coma on uh friday morning ish mm. um so yeah it was a pretty terrible time for my friends and family while i was you know snoozing away yeah <laughs> but um but yeah so when i got out of the coma i had a uh, short-term memory loss i had a collapsed lung i had pneumonia the works um but it didn't really matter just it, like at that point i heard all of those things but i also heard how lucky i was to be there so yeah. That didn't really matter to, too much, to be honest, the, in the grand scheme of yeah. things. The thing that blows my mind about this story is <coughs> you're also 24 when this happened. I was, yeah, yeah. When I think cardiac arrest, I think heart attack, but that's yeah. not what a cardiac arrest what, is. What is the difference between a heart attack and cardiac arrest? Well, this, this you, we've touched on a really important point here, guys, because um, I didn't know what the difference was at the time either, and mm. it's a really important difference that um, I want to try and make people aware mm. of. So... Uh, a, a heart attack is a plumbing problem. So when you have a blockage mm-hmm. in the heart to one of your arteries, that's a, a heart attack yeah. in layman's terms. A cardiac arrest is an electrical malfunction in the heart. So if you think about um, a train going off the rails and it, it's not functioning at that point in time, obviously because it's not on the rails, mm-hmm. so it's, 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 an, it's an abrupt electrical mm-hmm. malfunction. Yeah. So if you think electrical, cardiac right. arrest, plumbing, heart attack, that's kind of the best uh, the simplest way to kind of describe the difference between the two. Mm. And you'll also notice difference in the symptoms as well. So if someone's having a heart attack, there's every chance that they're still conscious mm. while they're having yes, a heart attack. Right. You can be right. having a heart attack for hours. Some people have had heart attacks for days. Right. Yeah. Jeez. Cardiac arrest, you are basically dead if you don't have any med- uh, immediate medical attention. Oh. So you're collapsed, you don't have a pulse, your heart is not functioning, it's... Uh, the way that the medical staff described to, described it to me was that my heart was uh, fluttering. So um, I know we're recording here, but it's basically like that. It was just kind mm. of quivering uh, and not beating as it should. So the heart goes off the rails for that period of time and you need uh, a defibrillator to bring your heart back to its normal rhythm. Mm. Just to shock it. Yeah. Mm. So just to break down the word defibrillator, so cardiac arrest that meant that my heart was in a rhythm called ventricular fibrillation. Right. And I needed a defibrillator mm. to get my heart back on track. Makes sense. So wow. 
shit man like yeah. imagine like you you think you know about the world but it's like holy yeah shit. it really puts <clears throat> your own uh, morality into Inter- question yes. when uh, when you hear a story like this yeah yeah reality of mortality yeah so did you have any memory or recollection of that experience none like i said the last memory i had was uh driving to the game on that wednesday evening mm. so it was literally like uh that 48 hour period roughly my memories were locked in a filing cabinet and someone threw away the key basically did so, you try to focus and meditate and just think that you know how did it feel like to well sorry but not be alive yeah oh it's 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 a pretty surreal thought did mm. you play with that thought when you're by yourself do you play with that thought like what would it be it like like did my soul left the body or how was it do you play around with that idea yeah uh I don't know if you well that depends yeah. on what you believe of course but yeah I haven't uh in too much detail to be honest I've tried not to overthink it mm. um I've just tried to think about the reality of what happened and not what didn't happen mm. so I think there will come a time though where I do think along those lines uh my partner Emily has always said to me that you'll always rethink this experience mm. so your view on it now may not be the same as your view on it in five years 10 years, years how long yeah. was it how long ago was it uh, so 2021 2021 wow. yeah so it was 2024 at the time and yeah i didn't have any kind of pre-existing health conditions yes. i had never had any issues with my uh heart or respiratory system or anything along those lines i was fitting well on the day um yeah there was really nothing that would have yeah. uh, led you led you to believe that something like that would happen but did you explore or read that why does it happen so when i was in hospital after i'd kind of recovered from the pneumonia and all of the other effects of the uh of the process uh they put me through a battery of tests hmm. so it was about 12 plus hmm. tests hmm. uh for different conditions uh some conditions are kind of dormant you don't find out about them until they cause something like that yeah uh and as it turned out i didn't turn positive for any of those conditions so no underlying heart conditions anything like that it was just a complete blip so so can it, it happen <laughs> to 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 people with with a set um you know set conditions or pre-existing conditions hereditary conditions can it happen to those sorts of people is that the explanation to cardiac arrest for well, for most people or i think heart heart attacks run in hereditaries like if if your parents or your father had a sort of you know um an exposure or well someone in your family had had a heart attack there there's a more likely chance that yeah. you, i don't know about cardiac arrests is it indiscriminatory in in the in that way cardiac arrests well it's a, it's a complicated issue like you've got you've got interplay with genetics you've got interplay with lifestyle choices yeah it's yeah it's quite complicated when it comes to heart attacks cardiac arrest in my family personally no one has had a cardiac arrest yeah. no one that i know has had a cardiac arrest uh and no one in my family has any of the heart conditions that i was tested for and you're a soccer player man you're fit as fuck <laughs> <laughs> i like to think so but you know um yeah m- maybe not as fit as i'd like to be these days <laughs> that's true what team do you support just off the topic uh ac milan 
Oh wow! See that—that's when you know you're a real soccer player, like AC Milan. <laughs> Fucking hell, man, that's cool. Yeah. What about you guys? Do you follow? I don't um, follow soccer. No. Uh, Man City. Man City. Man City. Oh, yeah, okay. always been a fan. Uh, just because, just because of Kevin De Bruyne, man. I just, I absolutely adore that man. He's uh, he's a special player. He is very special. I wish Dan knew what we were talking no, about. No, uh, yeah, I wish. I wish I did. <laughs> Do you follow footy, Dan? No, no. So I'm not a sports guy at all. Okay. Yeah. He's a midfielder, let's say in a field of, uh, you know, 10 players playing. He's a midfielder and he has an awareness of where each and every individual player is. He's passing and crossing balls with every single second of just a blip. As soon as he touches the ball, pass, cross, pass, cross. Just one of the best men. He's special. (coughs) Anyways, um, so... You wake up in a hospital. So, what's your first? Uh, what's your first thought? What's your first reaction? How did you end up here? Uh, so, this is actually a a really uh, interesting question again because I had short term memory loss when I first woke up. Hmm. How how short? Very short. Wow. Like, I actually played with it a little bit. Hmm. So my memory hmm. came back, but I didn't quite let everyone know that my memory hmm. had come back. Right. Yeah. So. Anyway, I'll get to that story afterwards. But uh, what the amazing nursing staff at Royal Melbourne did was write down on a piece of paper what had actually happened to me. Mm. Because when I first woke up, all I was doing was asking what the hell happened to me. Someone would explain it and then I would forget. Yeah. And this process went on and on and on for the entire day. So what they did was they wrote down on a piece of paper uh, along the lines of, you have had a sudden cardiac arrest. You are going to be okay. You are at Royal Melbourne Hospital. And that piece of paper I clung to like my most yeah. prized possession because it just put everything into context. I didn't have to ask the question yeah. anymore. I just looked over it um, and just pondered over it for the entire day and just was in kind of complete disbelief. Like it was just a kind of incredulous feeling just knowing that, this is what had happened to me. This is where I was. And uh, it just put everything into context, I suppose, like those three sentences. <laughs> Did that happen over multiple days? Did you have to refer to that piece of paper? Yeah, it was about a day, a day and a half. A day and a half. Well, I was just looking back at that piece of paper. Wow. And so, I've still got it. Like it's well, just, yeah. it kind of, it kind of uh, shaped that 36-hour period for me, that piece of paper, and it made it much more comforting. So when you, you said that you were asking that question again and you'd forget. Yeah. So whenever you had that piece of paper and whenever you'd forget, yeah. you'd look at it and yeah. go through the whole experience of just, you know, being there again. Yeah. It was oh, just man. it was just very reassuring, to be honest with you. It was just as simple as it sounds, just having that written down, put everything into perspective, and it reassured me that I was going to be okay. Wow. Because mm. if you if you don't know why you're in a place, um, the one place you don't want to be in is a hospital. Yeah, true. If yeah. you don't know why you're in a hospital, you automatically become panicked. And think to yourself, why on earth am I in a hospital? What's happened to me? Am I going to be okay? But having that on a piece of paper there uh, just reassured me that I was going to get through it. And that was really pivotal um, for the immediate aftermath. Mm. But when you sort of woke up and you saw and you looked around, did you realize what would have happened? 
Or like, did you like, cause when you're, when you wake up at a place and you open your eyes and you look around, you sort of like yeah. make sense. Oh shit, I'm in a hospital. I must have had an accident yeah. or some shit. Do you try to make sense? Anything? Cause I've had a similar experience. I was driving, yeah. this is back in India. I was driving to, uh, I think to school mm. um, and I was on my bike and I remember I was very sleepy. I closed my eyes for mm. a second. Mm. And the next time I opened my eyes, I had my, my mom, my uncle, doctor, yeah. nurse. And I opened my eyes like, holy shit, where am I? Yeah. And like, Maybe I'm gonna say a couple of minutes after I made sense, like I must have had an accident, definitely. Yeah. So it was. It's a very weird. Ex- I don't remember from the fall to I'm gonna say what next six, seven, eight hours. I don't have any memory of really? that at all. Um, I luckily had a friend who was going to the same school. Um, he just knew me off of because we had the same uniform, and yeah. he sort of like you know helped me call the cops and yeah. you know called the ambulance and blah blah blah. So he told me what had happened. And I was like, yeah. "Holy shit! I had no memory of that." Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's weird, man. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird. very confronting it's, experience. Yeah. When you woke up, did you have short term memory loss? Or you? No, 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 no. Um, but I think my left half of my face was sort of numb. Oh God! Because I hit my head first, and uh, my this eye took i think at least i'm gonna say two months just yeah. to heal because this whole thing was just red yeah because of the I, I still have sort of like a you know numbness here but yeah i mean you live with it yeah that's it well we all have baggage i suppose it's inevitable as you yeah, age i know but uh did you try to make any sense like where am i or how did this happen yeah i, I did and uh, immediately I would have just asked questions well, asking the, questions yeah, yeah the frustrating thing was i mean uh, there's not much you can do with short-term memory yeah, loss if true. you can't remember you can't remember right yeah, yeah well i'd ask the question someone would explain the an- would give me the answer yeah. and then half an hour would pass <laughs> i'd ask the same question yeah again. So can you know, in a continual loop anyway? Yeah, it was driving. Um, it was actually my dad who was at the hospital when I woke up. It was just him there, and he kind of had to deal with the first few hours of it before my uh, partner and my mum were able to turn up and kind of sub him out and sub themselves in. Uh, but yeah, he had to kind of he had the patience to deal with that initial kind of uh, period of me waking up and regaining that consciousness. Um, so yeah, he was the one responsible for answering my repetitive questions. Uh, but then for some reason I knew that I had short-term memory loss, uh, partly Mm. because they kept telling me I had short-term memory loss that might have something to do with it, but I don't know why, but I decided to play a pretty sick joke on Emily and my mum when they arrived at the hospital, um, because they had just been briefed that I had short-term memory loss. So the first thing I said to them when they turned up was, who are you two? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, I do that too. I and they just too. went like blue in the face. <laughs> it was like, and in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done it any other way. But yeah. I think you've got to do, you you've to. got 100%. to uh, lean into humor in situations like that. You do. Yeah. You do. Is it funny that you like, you were at a weird place in your humor kicked in because i did the exact same thing bro i'm not kidding the second i opened my eyes i saw my mom i saw my uncle and i saw my mom was worried yeah and the first thing said is my face beauty okay just some <laughs> random shit i just because your humor kicks in yeah. i don't know why that's that's happened i don't know why it is a strange thing it is a strange thing you get hit in your head you had experience like then you're like i'm gonna yeah. be funny now mm. well christian and um, another friend of mine anthony who were at the game they use the similar tactic. So they just saw one of their friends kind of collapse and have kind of a near-death experience. So they were, after the stadium, I think they drove to the hospital to see if they could come and visit. Um, And 
on from what they tell me on the car ride there, all they were doing was telling jokes mm. and trying to use yes. humor yeah. to relieve the stress, stress yes. of what they'd just gone through. So true, yeah. true. It's a powerful tool. How did that experience change you as a person? Uh, it's just it's I think like fundamentally I'm the same same person in the sense that I still have the same uh, ambition, still same goals, uh, same interests. So nothing uh, like that has changed. What I would say is that I reconsider situations hmm. uh, and view things with a different lens. So, for example, a situation that is not going to cause me any stress or trouble in a day's time, a week's time, a month's time, I don't really pay too much attention to it. Mm. I kind of focus my attention yeah. on things that will impact me in five years' time, ten years' yeah. time, True. 15 years' time. So not letting trivial things get to you. That's exactly right yeah. because you don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. Yeah. And I think the story is a perfect example of that. You can be any age, any fitness level, and something like this can happen to you. So it's about enjoying the ordinary days. So days where nothing goes particularly wrong, mm. nothing goes particularly right, because inevitably over the course of your life, there will be days which are harder than others. So it's about enjoying the days yeah. which are just average, really, going to work, having dinner with your family yeah. and uh, enjoying those average days because there really is beauty in the average. There is. Yes, when you have a traumatic experience, you get to really appreciate how beautiful normality actually is. Yeah. Because when you're lying in a hospital bed and you've had a near-death experience and you don't know what your next day, two days, three days look like, look like mm. all you can wish for is just a normal day. Yeah. Uh, and there really is uh, beauty in those normal days. So I do appreciate them a lot more now. Yeah. And I think we just take things for granted and just complain about, you know, and um, <laughs> things that really aren't going to make an impact on you in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Why let those things consume you with anger or stress or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important it's an important issue too because I think that nowadays people are a lot more anxious than what they used to be. And that's for a number of different reasons. Yeah. True. Social media being one, for example. And if you look at uh how often people kind of practice gratuity in their lives it's probably not as often as they're scrolling through Instagram yeah. or looking at Twitter, for example. And sure. these platforms are designed to grab your attention. They're not, a, they're not designed to allow, uh, to foster connection yes. between other human yeah. beings. And ultimately that's the driver of happiness, right? Yeah. Connection between human beings, but social, social, social beings. Social beings, yeah. 100%, yeah. So uh, that, uh, like, so, some th those things as in, social media platforms in this example can drive anxiety, drive stress. Mm. And we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, yet we're the most anxious, one of the most anxious populations in the yeah. world. Mm. So it's, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the issue there is that we're not necessarily grateful for what we do have. True. Uh, so in summary, I, I sh it's just, it's kind of a shame that it's taken a near death experience for me to realize that. But, um, yeah, it's kind of just trying to see the forest through the trees and look at what's really important. It 
it's turned you into a more empathetic person. Is that fair to say as well? I think so. Yeah. Look, yeah. Uh, I always try and tune into the feelings of others and put myself in others' shoes. Um, it's quite important, but I, I think that, yeah, after an experience like that, um, yeah, you definitely have more to empathize with people on in terms of, um, you know, for example, other experiences they might've had in terms of, um, medical mishaps. Yeah. So yeah, I, I suppose it's just life experience. Yeah. I think empathy and kindness go together and yeah. you just be like, man, you don't know what's going on in someone else's life. If it's someone's true. pissed off, you know, mm. cutting you off in traffic, you don't know what's going on in their life. You just be like be kind, be empathetic and just move on with the day. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's let's pivot a little bit. Um, Heart of the Nation, how did you get involved with that organisation and what is it? Yeah, so uh, I didn't know this at the time, but I had two weeks in hospital mm. where I didn't have much to do other than watch Disney Plus on my phone. <laughs> on the bed, yeah. yeah. Read a book and just kind of have thoughts to myself Can I, how long you were in there in total in hospital yeah so i was in hospital for two weeks two and weeks. so part Oof. of it was kind of recovery hmm. part of it was testing hmm. and the last half of it was a procedure so i had to have a defibrillator installed oh that's right yes so you nearly glazed over that as well yeah so what what is that that's all good uh so it's called an icd um so it's essentially uh defibrillator that you would see on the wall but it's implanted in my chest mm. um it's a much smaller version of it and yeah. what it does is monitor my heart 24 7 uh and should it detect that uh arrhythmia yeah. again it'll shock me and bring my heart back on track right um so it's essentially like an insurance policy that's gonna sit with me my entire life mm. uh so i had that procedure um on the second last day uh that I was in hospital and uh, it's pretty, it lies there kind of well, not dormant, but you know, it doesn't really affect me day to day. Yeah, I know it's there. Sometimes I can feel it when I'm sleeping, but just the reassurance of having that yeah. in my chest is fantastic. Um, and basically I wasn't really allowed to leave hospital until I had that procedure um, because in the event that it happened again, I was in a hospital and I was in the safest place to be resuscitated. Yeah. Uh, especially because they didn't know why it happened to me. There was a lot of uh, uncertainty around whether or not it could happen again and how soon it could happen again, considering yeah. that there was no cause for why it happened. So, um, yeah, that sits in my chest now and it will for the rest of my life yeah. and it acts as a guardian angel essentially. Yeah. I have to get the battery replaced every 10 years. So <laughs> back in hospital in yeah 2031 to get it uh changed but yeah look it's a pretty small price to pay for having that yeah. level of protection yeah is it hard to cross <laughs> airport security with that <laughs> just a that is a bro. very specific <laughs> question and it's very relevant too i don't know why it just popped in my head it's like holy shit i'll actually just you know they does it um what yes so i have to <coughs> <coughs> sorry a little bit under the weather this week um yes so i have to travel quite often for work yeah. and uh, what happens is at Sydney airport, not at Melbourne airport, the, uh, scanning machines at Sydney airport are prehistoric compared in compared in comparison to, uh, Melbourne airports, new machines. So basically I have to, I have to strip off 
That's in the airport. Belt, shoes, jacket, the works, everything out of the pockets, and I have to get a manual, um, oh, manual pat down. Yeah. yeah. So I can't go through the traditional metal detectors. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm a I'm a card carrying member of the ICD club as well. Mm. So I have to show the card every time just to um, let them know that you know I actually have a device. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, but Melbourne Airport it's fine. They have different machines. Wow. Um, but Sydney Airport and other airports around the world um, don't necessarily have the upgraded machines that allow you to walk through. Man, wow. that's, that's so weird and hard to just, you know, strip down an airplane. Like, yeah, okay, go on. Here comes another one. I've yeah. done this so many times. <laughs> well, they ask me every time, well, do, you want, do you want a private room? And I just, the first time I said, okay, sure, because I didn't, I didn't know what they were going to do. Yeah. And um, yeah, after that first experience, I'm just like, get me out of this queue. Get me out of this, yeah, this, yeah. this hall and just pat me down here. Just go for it. Oh, man. Yeah, and some of them, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and as they should be, they're pretty intrusive, but I don't know. Again, a small price to pay. <laughs> small price to pay. So it stays with you for the rest of your life? Yeah. Fuck, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just, just sits up here. Does that affect your abilities to perform, like run or, uh, you know? Funny, funny you say that. It doesn't at all um Good. the only thing and the reason it's funny to say that is because i am i'm doing run melbourne the half marathon tomorrow oh, good job yes sir very <laughs> nice so uh i think the only thing that it stops me from doing is kind of uh heavy weight lifting so mm. one rep maximum uh or three to five reps of kind of heavy weights in terms of bench press or inclined bench press anything like that what's um, that Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, so makes sense. The wire, it, it sits here and it's connected uh, to my heart through a wire mm. and it basically goes across my chest and then goes down my sternum into my heart. And the point of not doing uh, bench press is uh, the risk of dislodging the wire. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that would obviously not be good. It would mean that I have to go in and uh, have a procedure to get the, the wire relodged. Yeah, and right. you can also damage the wire if you kind of uh use that muscle um in that kind of movement so that's who, about the only thing who gets indicated if something goes wrong with, with that yeah so <laughs> i mean how, how do you like, know something's gone awry like, you'll feel a massive shock <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that how it works it's like a tracking device it, yeah because yeah. the so if i ever had a cardiac arrest again uh and the uh, icd had to deliver a shock the notification goes straight to my cardiologist right so they're gotcha. aware of any time it delivers a shock and they're also aware of any damage yeah, to the icd right. as well talk about technology yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can actually look at my heart rate right now and they can tell you what my heart's doing it is a tracking device it's it is a tracking, tracking device. device wow jeez yeah. I like to think that they don't do that, but they yeah. could if they wanted to. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Your cardiologist is really like eating popcorns, like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm really, yeah, I was <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and just sitting at the computer and watching your heart go. <laughs> yeah. So every every three months or so, no, not every three months, every year I catch up with the cardiologist and he kind of gives me a play-by-play highlight reel of what my heart has been doing over the past 12 months. <laughs> this was your average heart rate over the past 12 months you know? yeah. and how have you been tracking since since the um ex, uh, since the accident since yeah, the, since the, since word. the yeah since the uh, cardiac arrest how has your heart been yeah look honestly not a blip yeah it's incredible it's it's just insane that the heart can have such a major 
malfunction. Yeah. And then two and a half years on, just it just completely continues yeah. without a trick. Yeah. Touch wood, but yeah, yeah without a trick, uh, no issue at all. Yeah, that's so strange. Um, and scary. It's scary and bizarre. Yeah. And yeah. One, one of the reasons for that is because of Todd's CPR. Like he uh, was so effective. Uh, my heart didn't have the opportunity to basically be damaged in any way. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the major concerns when I was in hospital as well, as well of, as well as having kind of neurological damage. Um, it was damaged the heart for being in that arrhythmia for so long. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my heart was lucky enough, uh, not to kind of undergo any particular damage and yeah, carry on basically. Jeez. Yeah. Mm. Did your cardiologist go through your, you said daily, um, how your um, yeah. heart's performing and be like, what were you doing then, Jesse? What was this? Like, this is too much. Yeah. Uh, did that, do they, um, like you, you're allowed to do normal, heavy physical activity, like running. And uh, as you said, you're doing a marathon. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's controversial. Hmm. So certain, uh, I've basically worked with kind of two cardiologists over the journey. Um, one has said that you should avoid going over 80% of your maximum heart rate. And the other is uh, kind of more inclined to allow me to kind of push the ba- push the boundaries. Mm. So the approach I've taken is a hybrid. So mm-hmm. uh, with my running training, for example, I do eighty percent slow runs and then twenty percent pace runs. Nice. So m- most of my runs are kind of below that zone five uh, area, which yeah. is you know eighty plus percent of my maximum heart rate. Um, and then 20% are quicker runs where I push the limits slightly. Um, so that's kind of the way I approach it just to make sure I don't, uh, Mm. swing too far one way or swing too far the other way. way. Um, have you played soccer after that? I have. Yeah. Good. I actually played uh, a few weeks ago, actually. None of my mates want to play with me anymore after that experience. <laughs> really? So I'm looking for a team. Why not? If anyone wants to play indoor soccer, okay, let me know. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. It's how, been... how, how long did it take you to get back into soccer after that? Uh, I think I think I played nine months like, after it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So well, did, did you find it would be too traumatic to go back to it again too, too soon or...? This is the ironic thing about it all, Dan, because it's almost so. It's almost like the fact that I don't remember anything yeah. is the brain's coping mechanism. Yeah, to deal with that trauma. Mm. And uh, for me, I went to I went to indoor soccer, and I woke up in hospital. Yeah, you can't have a trauma if you don't even remember about yeah. it. Yeah. How would you have trauma? Because you don't remember it. Yeah, what he's doing is just true. working off of what other people are telling him, and like it, then you're just trying to make sense of what would have happened. Yeah, and, and it the does. Thing. It's not much. It doesn't affect you that much as mm. actually seeing yourself and feeling it. Yeah, that makes sense. If you, you actually like, experienced it, that's yeah, true. But because you have no memory of it, it's yeah. If you if you interviewed Emily or if you had Emily here today, her account of the story would be entirely different. different. Yeah. Oh, true. Because yeah. it. So she, she experienced it, yeah. So on the Wednesday night, she had the sleepless night. Yeah. She had the uncertainty as to whether or not I'd be the same ever again. Mm, yeah. And it's the same for my parents, parents yes. my sister, extended family, yeah. anyone who's close to me. So they spend that Wednesday night wondering if Jesse would ever be the same mm, yeah. <clears throat> ever again. And uh, 
sometimes they actually get frustrated with me because I don't recount the story as well as I should. Yeah. Which is fair enough because the only reason, the only way I can recount the story is recounting the story that you told me. Yeah. So it's a secondhand story. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, we, were, we just glazed on the, on the project you were working with. Yeah. Uh, what was the project called? Heart of the Nation. Heart of yeah. the Nation. Just please tell us about that again, man. Yeah. So this is not a secondhand story. Uh, so when I was in uh, hospital, as I said, I had plenty of time to uh, think and lots of time to have kind of my own uh, thoughts to myself, I suppose. And what I started thinking was started thinking about were the lessons that I'd taken from the entire experience. Um, the first one, obviously, is that CPR is critical. Not enough. Australians know how to do CPR. Mm. 22% of Australians are trained in CPR within one year. So CPR ultimately saved my life and yeah. it's a crucial life skill. And sorry not to cut you off. You yeah. said when you were at the hospital, you had a ruptured lung, oh. which would have happened from CPR, if, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. So that's that's a sign that they've done a good job. Yeah. yeah right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Collapsed or, lung. Or, or a broken rib, actually. So Todd, again, <laughs> to sidetrack, this is yeah. a funny story. Uh, Todd's CPR was so good that he bruised my ribs. He didn't yes, break yeah. my ribs. Mm, yeah. But in so many ways, bruised ribs are worse than broken ribs. Right. Because with a broken rib, your rib has flexibility as you inhale yeah. because it's broken. Because my ribs were bruised, I basically couldn't breathe for a few days afterwards. Yeah. So you I feel it to, every time. Yeah, Every right, time know, yeah. you feel I it. I know. Been there. Yeah, it's not fun. Yeah, no, yeah. no, I know. I was um, doing jujitsu with someone and I popped someone's uh, um, lower rib. Yeah, was holding him from the back and I could heal it. Man, it was very bad for him. Like he could just. But what happened is, a couple of minutes after, as he like took a it, like a long yeah. breathe in and it just popped back again. I said, yeah. Holy shit! I don't know how that works. Yeah, but that's bad. Yeah, bruised, uh, bruised lungs are bad. Um, ribs are bad. Oh yeah, it yeah, it's not fun. But anyway. Um, so CPR was one of the major things I took away from the experience. Everyone should know it. Everyone should be trained in it regularly uh, because you never know when you'll need it. And mm. it's not just the per that person's life you're saving. You're making an impact on that person's entire network. Yeah. So, you know, if Todd didn't perform CPR on me, I wouldn't be here. But it also means that a mother and father would have lost a son. Yeah. A girlfriend would have lost a partner and the list goes on. Yeah. So kind of the impact of that person dying impacts so many more people just than them. 100%. Uh, so that's how powerful CPR can be. And it was one of the, the obvious kind of lesson that I took from the whole experience. Um, and the second was a little bit more philosophical around enjoying the ordinary days, being grateful for all of the good in your life and looking at life through that lens rather than um, focusing on what isn't going well. Yeah. Considering we live in such a lucky country, there's a lot that is going for us. Mm. So shifting your focus um, to the good. Uh, the third thing that I took from it was uh, treating your body and mind as an absolute temple. Uh, and obviously you can't be perfect. No one's perfect. We're all going to indulge in a hot jam donut and, uh, you know, mm. take away here and there. But... The reason that I was so able, so easy to be resuscitated, the reason uh, Todd was able to resuscitate me so successfully is because I had a high level of fitness mm. going in, yeah, um, which made it easy for uh, Todd to perform CPR effectively. Mm. Um, if I was overweight or um, w 
didn't have kind of um, that level of fitness, CPR is less effective. It's harder yeah. to be more effective with CPR. True. Yeah. Um, so the fact that I kind of had re- uh, respected my body going in meant that I was able to be resuscitated mm. when I needed to be. Yeah. Yes. So that was also very important um, and a point I wanted to make. And then the last was just around uh, how grateful I was for the nursing staff and doctors at the hospital that I'd worked at, uh, that I'd kind of been admitted to. Uh, they were amazing. Uh, I'd never had a chance to kind of have an extended uh, period in hospital, thankfully. But when I was in hospital, I really got to appreciate uh, how amazing the people that work in that industry are uh, and for what they do. Uh, it's just extraordinary that they turn up to work every, every day, day with a smile on their face and uh, willing to help others in need. And yeah, I was just kind of marveled at how impressive um, the staff at the hospital were. So after I kind of put those thoughts together, um, I just really put them in my own notes, basically, just as a personal kind of keep safe. Um, so I could look back on the time and think about what I'd learned. And then Emily, my partner, kind of encouraged me to expand on the ideas I'd had and put them in an article format. So initially I was uh, hesitant to do that, but like she does, she pushed and uh, it worked out for the best because I spent some time expanding on those ideas and I put an article together and I put it on LinkedIn, uh, which was strange for me because I'd only ever used LinkedIn to speak about my actual profession yeah uh, I'd never used it as a platform to speak about personal things mm. um, which was what I was mainly nervous yeah. about but as it turned out the uh, the article really got some good traction yeah um, a lot of people that I worked with reddit reached out to me but also a lot of people who weren't necessarily in my network reached out to me after the link to, after the article had reached their uh, feed and one of those people was Greg yeah uh, and Greg had just found the heart of the nation yeah. after suffering a cardiac arrest, basically a year to the day after I suffered my cardiac arrest. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh. So he had a cardiac arrest on stage at a Wiggles reunion concert. And like me, he was incredibly uh, fortunate to have uh, someone who was trained in CPR in the crowd while he was performing. She was actually a nurse. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't just the nurse. He also had a number of others. Uh, come to his aid and resuscitate him basically. So that was in January 2020. Mm-hmm. So again, a, roughly a year after my uh, event. And uh, he reached out to me after uh, I posted the article, told me about Heart of the Nation. And at that point I was all on board, ready to do everything I can yeah. to, ready, ready to do everything I could to spread awareness. Yeah. And uh, what Heart of the Nation do basically is um, – spread awareness of the chain of survival framework um, mm. in a, and they do that in a number of different ways. So the chain of survival framework is basically a, a life-saving framework that starts with uh, calling an ambulance when you notice someone uh, is in a non-lifelike state, starting CPR yeah. and providing access to a defibrillator. So um, Heart of the Nation kind of address all of those uh, elements of the framework in different ways. So one example is the Heart of the Nation Communities Program where uh, neighbours can band together to pull the funds 
to purchase a defibrillator from Heart of the Nation uh, that is publicly available 24-7 and sits within the community. Yeah. And the idea is to have a defibrillator within 500 metres of every person's home in that community. So cardiac arrest happens in the home. That's where it happens the most. Yeah. Uh, So to have a defibrillator in the community as a keep safe for everyone living in that community is profound yeah and obviously has the potential to be life-saving mm. uh one thing also to consider is that with sudden cardiac arrest 90 percent of people who have them don't survive when they happen out of hospital 90 percent. so wow. in australia about thirty thousand people a year have a sudden cardiac arrest so yeah that that and only 10 percent of those people survive so the idea is with heart of the nation very simply to bring that survival rate up as much as possible yeah. because 90% of people not surviving, like quite frankly, is, is not good enough yeah. when there is yeah. so much that can be done to resuscitate people. Yeah. And it's all based on luck as well. Yeah. Like where you happen to be, who happens to know CPR, where where's an AED. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's taking luck out of the equation as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So on the CPR front, Heart the Nation also have recently merged with um, the Michael Hughes Foundation. So they provide... Um, CPR and first aid training courses uh, mm-hmm. around the country. Uh, so again, another element of the the chain of survival framework. So it's all about um, ensuring that we're prepared to handle these situations as best as we possibly can. Because uh, in my situation, I was obviously extremely lucky, but ninety percent of people don't have the uh, don't have the second chance I had. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, if I, if I'm an ex- and I'm I suppose a perfect example of the fact that it can happen to anyone at any time. So we need to be yeah. prepared to handle the situation when it does happen. And should you be on a hike or somewhere where you know people weren't dead or you didn't have the defib around? Again, an interesting yeah. point. I feel like you're reading my mind today <laughs> because I mean, I actually was on a hike a couple of days before it oh, happened. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. So if it happened then, yeah. I was at Cape Shank, uh, Emily and I, yeah. remote area, not yeah. Cape Shank. no one around. Yeah. And I was doing hill sprints for God's sake. Yeah. Just, just because. Yeah. Um, and if it had have happened to me then, Emily would have basically seen my soul vanish. That brings a very interesting point that if people in their families have you know, hereditary heart problems, let's say. Yeah. I think they should be cautious over or train themselves to deal with situations. So let's say if Emily had some sort of training, let's say if she was a nurse, like I have friends who are whose yeah. partners are nurses. Yeah. And, you know, they are in a much better position. Yeah. Um, having to deal with what happens. For sure. So, yeah. There, there is another charity uh, founded by someone called Andy Pascalides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Etc. Yeah. And Andy worked with uh, Les at SBS at the time. Uh, Andy went on to start a charity called Heartbeat of Football, and uh, a lot of what they do is preventative. So uh, they will go to over 35 football games, for example, mm-hmm. and test people yeah. on site for kind of high blood pressure, cholesterol, etc. Anything that might trigger an event on the field. Yeah. Um, so their approach is slightly different to Heart of the Nations, but um, yeah, it's good to know there are charities working in that space as well in the true. preventative side. Yeah, true. You talked a little bit of about your profession. Well, you actually didn't. I'm interesting to know. Interested to know if if you can talk about it. What do you do? What do you do for work, Jesse? Uh, 
I wear a few different hats. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so during the day, I work in consulting and advisory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mainly in the infrastructure sector. Well, okay. So work with uh, asset owners like water utilities, power utilities, mm. airports, mm-hmm. and the like. Uh, and we basically help them uh, deliver on their capital programs more efficiently and effectively. Mm. So these asset owners have uh, renewals programs, mm. so maintaining their assets and then also growth programs, for example. How can they uh, grow their asset base to cater for ongoing demand? So we help them with uh, capital planning. We help them with setting up delivery offices. Uh, we help them with uh, strategy and tra- transformations, organizational planning. Mm. Um, we help them in the regulatory, regulatory space as well. So how they can communicate with regulators um, and help them with submissions. Uh, so we basically along those lines. Finance. Well, in a well, way. In a yeah. way, yes. Yeah, so I was originally a project manager. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my background. So I worked uh, mainly in the aviation sector yeah. as a project manager for the company I work for now. Um, and then the opportunity came up to join a consulting and advisory team. I felt like doing something different. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I've been doing for the past year and a half. That's nice. my day job. Um, but on the weekends, I'm an event DJ. Oh, wow. wow. That's cool. So mm-hmm. yeah, my uh, a friend of mine, we kind of do... Uh, DJ MC combo essentially. Yeah, right. Um, but like we can do either. So I could be the MC, he could be the DJ, and vice versa. Um, so yeah, that's our kind of thing we do on the weekends um, mm-hmm. when we can. And yeah, what's um, the money pal? Ah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was something. Uh, so I, I'm actually I'm actually in the middle of finishing off uh, a book at the moment, and I've been. Working on it for three, oh, coming on three years, not quite three years, but yeah, right. uh, basically in uh, 2018, 2019, actually the story goes beyond that as well. So uh, in 2015, I read a book called uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is kind of a cliche for personal finance book, but yeah. I picked it up when I was 19 uh, and it kind of changed my life basically. Yeah. Uh, and kind of my takeaway from that book was wealthy people acquire assets, you know, not so wealthy people, not so wealthy people acquire liabilities. So yeah. how can I acquire as many assets as possible in the shortest amount of time? Yeah. Um, Shout out to Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shout out to Robert. Because um, that book, again, as much as it is kind of a common book that most people read, it was life changing for me. It changes our perspective immediately. It's like, holy it shit, does. I've just been looking at things way different yeah it does because if you look at it man like people are making 60 70 well average is what you know what's a 90 grand a year yeah and someone's driving a you know lamborghini that's five hundred thousand dollars yeah even if you save for next 10 years yeah spend zero dollars you still can't afford that car yeah and everyone's playing with the same rules same rules same things but yet that person knows something more that you don't exactly how does that happen well exactly and that was kind of the mission i went on just to figure out what the other side looked like and mm-hmm. how people got there. Uh, and initially I started, like I was quite interested in, in property. Um, so did research, looked at different people leading the space in that area. And I kind of quickly came to the realization that as kind of as much as property has created enormous amounts of wealth for people in the past, I wasn't exactly sure if it would continue to do so in the future, considering the massive, uh, uptick in valuations, mm. 
but also the increasing taxes, interest, yeah. um, interest rates, interest rates, a number of different expenses yeah. that property owners had to bear. Um, also considering that most properties in Melbourne and Sydney particularly are negatively geared, which means that effectively they're losing money. Yeah. So people buy negatively geared property for the tax advantage. Yeah. But when you think about it from a profit and loss perspective, you're losing money yeah. every year holding that property. So that strategy works for certain people. It wasn't necessarily a strategy I wanted to take up. Mm. Um, so I started thinking about other, other asset classes and I looked at the share market. And uh, growing up, the share market was always uh, seen as – uh, well, the view of uh, the people that I was surrounding myself with was the Risky. view of it was yes. this is a casino, yes. don't go near it. And uh, well, I wanted to learn that lesson for myself mm. if it was true. Yeah. And I did learn that lesson because I gambled on a couple of speculative, speculative shares. Luckily, it wasn't a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of money at the time. Um, and I thought, well, they were right. I learned the hard way. Mm. Back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think with shares, uh, you need a lot of capital to make a lot of capital. If you think about making things yeah. quick, if you want to make quick money, then you need a lot of money initially, if I'm not wrong, I could be wrong. Um, like shares, could you could just invest slowly and have them grow up eventually over the period of time, just compound interest. Well, that, yeah, exactly right. But, well, yeah, go on. I was just going to say that it's um, the, the one thing I learned was that there's no such thing as getting rich quick. It doesn't oh, happen. Oh, no, it doesn't no. work like that now. So that's when I picked up a book called uh, The Intelligent Investor by uh, a guy called Benjamin Graham. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you guys know uh, Warren Buffett. Yeah, Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, Benjamin Graham was Warren Buffett's uh, lecturer at Columbia University. Yeah. Yeah. So he built a relationship with him that way. And basically that book is about uh, value investing, which yeah. is looking at companies and trying to buy them below their um, intrinsic value, which is yeah. their, essentially um, their worth based on evaluation methodology. So that kind of opened my eyes about different ways to look at the share market. Yeah, you know, buying companies at value um, was something that really interested me. So I dug into that area, and then I thought, why does no one know about this? Like Australia is such a property crazed country. Why does no one kind of have a basic understanding of the share market and kind yeah. of the wealth building potential of it? So then I started reading um, other areas in relation, like reading about other knowledge areas in relation to the share market itself. And um, I read a book by a guy called John Bogle, who's the founder of Vanguard, and he preaches passive investing. So um, steadily buying and uh, index tracking ETF at a regular interval over a period of time and using compound interest, interest as your um, as your magic yeah. uh Magic, magic weapon or secret weapon and just leveraging that yeah. over a period of time. And as it turned out, using that approach of just uh, passively investing in a broad-based index tracking ETF uh, far outperforms anyone trying to pick individual stocks yeah. uh, in most cases. So most individual uh, money managers who people give their money to to manage on behalf of them, they don't perform the broader market, don't mm. outperform the broader market uh, in Australia, 80% plus of professional money managers don't outperform the index over a 15-year period. And these are the professionals who are paying to manage yeah. their money on our behalf. All you yeah. can do is just invest in an index fund, you know, sit on your couch, relax, and just see your money go up eventually, very slowly, but eventually. But Exactly. But you just need to do it consistently. If you do it consistently enough, yeah. you build yeah. up a, enough of a base and compound it can really work its magic um, yes. the, on the larger bases of capital. So... 
anyway, I started consuming all of this knowledge and I thought to myself, why does no one know about this? Why do none of my friends talk about this yeah. um, as kind of a wealth building tool? Because property for millennials and Gen Z is out of reach for a lot yeah. of people. Um, so I wanted to talk about the share market as a wealth building tool. I wanted to change the stigma of it to make it less of a casino, more of a wealth building tool that didn't have, you know, all of the expenses that property had, mm. uh, like rates, insurances, mm. um, maintenance, etc. Yeah. Uh, and it actually outperformed property, property yeah. in Australia and in the US over um, a multiple decade period. So mm. uh, that's why I started the Money Pal. Just started mm. writing about the share market, putting my own thoughts together. Uh, and it, it's kind of um, gotten to a point now where I've captured all of those thoughts and I'm trying to distill them into a book. Yeah. So uh, I'm kind of at the later, later stages of putting that together. Uh, initially, it'll just probably be an ebook on the website, yeah. but I'll see what I can do to get it published. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's basically about growing well slowly in the share market uh, using uh, the simplest ways and methodologies possible because there's so many different ways you can approach it. I mean, if you want to think about it as um, something that you just want to set and forget, you can do that and you'll probably just beat the market anyway or mm -hmm. beat most people trying to beat the market anyway. Or you can invest actively um, if that's your game. Yeah. Uh, but you really have to be interested in investing ac actively. You really have to be interested in digging into the weeds yeah. of a company. You have to be interested in reading the balance sheets and yeah. income statements. Um, you have to go all in. <laughs> you do, yeah, if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what I do is just passively when I get paid, invest. Yeah. Uh, 20% of my wage and set and forget. Yeah. <coughs> How old were you when you started investing? <coughs> investing properly? Probably, yeah. Yeah, oh, probably 23 or so, yeah. How but old are you now? 26? 27. 27, wow. Yeah, so when I've, <laughs> between 19 to 23, that was the learning curve. Learning, learning yeah. curve. Mm. That's yeah. when I made all the mistakes yeah. and um, tried to figure out what the best approach for me was. And not to say I haven't, I didn't make any state, any mistakes from 23 to now. Um, I think I just probably had a deeper understanding of what it was I wanted to achieve, why markets worked in certain ways and what yeah. type of invest, what type of investor I want to be at this point in time. And where do you, um, would rate crypto in, in the, in the equation of stocks, investing, being safe, not being a casino, where do you rate? Um, yeah look i'm not a crypto expert by any means mm -hmm. uh but did you play around with it at any time i did yeah not mm -hmm. a lot uh look kind of the way i think about it is if you think about like the two bitcoin as an example because i think like, bitcoin is obviously the um the most well known mm -hmm. but it's probably uh, the safest if you wanted to step into the crypto space as well because there are a lot of shit coins and scams Vanguard out there. of yeah. crypto. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, um, there's a lot that you don't get with Bitcoin that you do with uh, an ETF oh, or, uh, you know, Woolworth shares, for example. So it's not, it's not an income-producing asset. So you're not going to get a dividend from... Bitcoin, all you rely on is capital appreciation. That's true. I do have a lot, lot, well, not lots. I have do, I do have Woolworth shares and I yeah. think they do pay dividends every year and you get that in David Group um, also on the side as well. So, which is pretty good that you're right. Um, yeah. Like Woolworths is, a, is an active business. Yeah. They're a 
thousands of people that work for Woolworths, they make a profit every year. They sell goods and they sell goods, mm. uh, which translates into income. Uh, and they're an actively trading business, for example. Bitcoin is uh, like gold, essentially. It's scarce. Mm. Well, not like gold, but you could compare it to gold. It's a scarce resource and uh, people rely on that. For and 30% over time. Yeah. 100% and 30% of his uh, sitting in lost hard drives. Wow. That's Yeah, that's the stat. So whatever 30% of 21 million is, yeah. um, is also lost. So very scarce. And uh, yeah. do you, would you plan and dive into crypto in coming time? Or you're going to stick with stocks? Not really on my radar, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, for the reasons I've just explained, it's not, it's not, um, an income producing asset, for example, it, it's not an active, uh, business. Mm. Uh, and also I don't fully understand it enough to put any capital to capital to work against it, to be Mm. honest. And it's kind of one of my mantras is I want to try and understand something as much as possible. If I'm going to make an active investment, uh, if I can't understand that, then I'll just stick to broad based indexed Tracking what ETFs. you know, like yeah. what your knowledge is. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So let's say someone like a 20 year old person yeah. wants to start investing. How do they start? Where do they start? Well, there's a number of different books I'd recommend because I think that it's when you're young, it's easy to be influenced. Mm. So there are so many uh, TikTok investors oh. out there okay. preaching different mm. agendas yeah. and mm. you're not necessarily aware of what those agendas are. Yeah. Uh, and it's so easy to get influenced. And I know from experience, like, it's so easy to get influenced by someone who seems to have made it and they preach a strategy and then before you know it, you know, they're asking for your money. Mm, I would yeah. say look at your phone when someone's explaining you where and what to invest. Yeah. Look at that as a sales pitch because that's sort of a salesman yeah. selling you their yeah. idea, yeah. their video because they're sort of making a gain out of that as well. Yeah. You do Well, there are some people, some selective people yeah. who are actually doing a very good job but most of them are just shit. Yeah, well, there are exactly there are so many snake oil salesmen mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, my recommendation would be to kind of if you need to fail, fail fast, fail early, and don't yeah. put too much capital at stake. Um, but I think the best thing to do is just read about um, passive investing, read about active investing, read about the fundamentals of the share market, figure out what type of investor you want to be. Uh, but I think ultimately you'll come back to the idea of just being a passive, Pace, yeah. low-cost, yeah. do-nothing investor. And it goes against our, uh, our own human psychology because we want Nature. to be active. Mm, we want to have yeah. Quick, control. Quick yeah. money. Yeah. But it's kind of a case of uh, do you want to get rich or get, uh, get rich quick, which in most cases is not possible, or mm. do you want to kind of grow well slowly and have more certainty around it? Mm. So the plan that you have now, and just before we start wrapping this up, the plan that you're working on now, how long is the plan? How far do you see that plan go next 10, 5 years, 10 years, 15? Well, I suppose the ultimate goal is to get to a point where you have some sort of level of financial independence, which Mm. means that uh, you can rely on your assets to support Mm. your living costs, essentially. So you can kind of go with go as far as you want to essentially like True. You, you just it's a matter of figuring out how much you need every year to live and what asset base you need to support that yeah mm. so there's a rule in finance called the four percent rule and what that means is basically um 
every year you take 4% off your asset base. Um, and that 4% might be coming through dividends or it might result in the sale of assets. But basically the 4% rule means that you can live uh, off 4% of your asset base and your asset base doesn't actually dwindle down over the years. It's just a sustainable amount. Yeah. Considering that the asset base, assuming the asset base grows at 4% every year. Big enough to <laughs> support your livelihood. Then it's just, then it's yeah. sustainable. So, you know, if you had a million dollars, for example, 4% of that is $40,000 a year. If mm. you can live comfortably at $40,000 a year, then that's all you need. Yeah. Um, so it just depends on the lifestyle, lifestyle you want to live and true. how much capital you want to acquire to support that lifestyle. And what would you say to the people who want to buy a house in this year, this day and age, let's say? Well, it's difficult because it's really down to your own uh, priorities. Uh, like, for example, and again, it's hard to kind of, it's kind of hard to give a view. When v- or a straight answer to that. Yeah, yeah. I see right. what you it's, mean. it's very dependent on your own personal circumstance, obviously. But um, look, to, if one thing that I did that really helped me was just get an understanding of where my money was actually going. That's because true. if you can get an understanding of what your expenses are, what you're spending on Netflix and what you're spending on kind of going being social every month and yeah. kind of what your rent is, etc. Or calorie can, payments are. All of big, those kind yeah. of things. Like there was a, a period of time where I, I didn't know what was going out. I knew what was coming in, yeah. but I didn't know what was going out. And then the end of the month would come up and I'd think, where has all my money gone? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the first step is to get a handle on what you actually uh, are spending and then from there, it's about understanding what your goals are, what you want to achieve yeah. over the next three to five years financially, and then um, understanding what you don't necessarily need to be spending from mm. what you're outlaying yeah. and reallocating that to whatever your goals might be. Given that this, what we just discussed is very kind of obvious that, well, just get a grip of what you have and yeah. you know, monitor your spending, monitor yeah. your earning. Are there any tools that you have used would be helpful to our listeners or to me or Dan? I just used a budgeting app called Fudget. Honestly. Fudget. Yeah. Shout out to Fudget then. Honestly, <laughs> game changer. Very simple app. Fudget. You put, put your income in, you put your expenses uh, in as well. It tells you what you've got left over for the rest of the month and it kind of just gives you clarity on what you're doing for yeah. that month financially. Um, and then once you've put your expenses in you can get an understanding of what you forecast to save that month and then however you want to use that money for savings you can so you can put it in a home deposit savings account mm. or you can say look i need a x amount for my home deposit if i can continue saving this month this month uh this much every month then i'll hit that deposit by yeah. x date and mm. if i have some surplus then i can invest uh the surplus into you know a share portfolio mm-hmm. that I want to build. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just all about having an understanding of what's coming in, what's coming out, and then using that as a, a platform to build the yeah. savings and investment just strategy. Really taking the time to budget. As yeah. Well. yeah. Okay. Let me ask you some hot questions quickly. Go. Five books you would recommend in terms of finance or philosophy, because we've both discussed <laughs> two today. Uh, that, you, that have influenced yeah. you as a yeah, person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I would say... Tuesdays with Maury is hmm. a fantastic book. Uh, that's What's that about? That's not a finance book, yeah. but it's about uh, someone who spends time uh, with someone every Tuesday hmm. who has a terminal illness. 
mm-hmm. and they just have conversations every Tuesday until that person deteriorates and Beautiful. is no longer able to have those conversations. Yeah. And the person who's having those conversations with the person who's got the terminal illness has uh, a high-profile career mm-hmm. and yeah. they he kind of it's it's really amazing the journey that he goes on after shifting um shifting from his high profile kind of career into the home of someone who's got a terminal illness mm. and over the course of the book his philosophy on life changes quite a lot yeah and it really changed my philosophy on life as well um so that's a great book uh what else it don't have to be five i just said no no it's okay <laughs> i do have five i just want to think <laughs> I want to think about them. In terms of um, finance, I would say the little book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle is fantastic. Mm. Um, really preaches how powerful just passively investing can be. For the layman, anyone can do it. It's just a hands-off approach. Yeah. You don't need to know much. Uh, honestly, after reading that book, you could probably get started. Uh, so that's a fantastic one. Uh, I would also say that... Uh, the Alchemist is an incredible book as well on mm. philosophy. Yeah. Uh, just the journey of life is also, yeah, quite incredible. Uh, yeah. If anything else comes to mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> Please, yeah, that's all good, man. There are a few. <sighs> Fuck, I think I forgot the question because I just delved into the book that you described. Fuck, I forgot the next question. Anyways, but that's a beautiful book, man. I would yeah. definitely read that. Yeah. That's To me, that's something like I think – me as an individual and I see around people that people lack patience yeah. in general, yeah. be it investing or anything else. Yeah. Like everyone wants to get things quickly. Yeah. So that book I think preaches, um, well, I haven't read it, but I think preaches patience. So I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah, no, you should. Um, on the MoneyPal website, there's actually a list of yeah. different books. Oh, wow. can, and I've kind of categorized, categorized them by beginner, um, intermediate, experienced investor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely filter by all the beginner books. Little yeah. little book for common sense, uh, common sense investing is one. So, good place uh, to start. Good place yeah. to start. Yeah, man, there's something very coming about your energy. We've, we've enjoyed so much having you on, man. We appreciate you. Coming We're glad here. you're still here. Oh, thanks, gents. Yeah, thank you for me, coming in. Me too. You're <laughs> a legend. Keep rocking, and uh, you know. We'll hope we could do this again sometimes. Talk about more about investing in finance. Yeah. I feel like it's a whole other podcast. Oh, that's as well. a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, let's yeah. wrap this up, Dan. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Bye, Thank everyone. You so much. Cheers. Bye.